we're going to read together. And so join me as we read uh, the text that's printed in your bulletin. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes on your feet, having put on the readiness to the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. God's word. You may be seated. Chris, I invite you to come. Let's pray now as we, as we turn to God's word. Jesus, to, to know this morning that we stand before you united to you who stands towering above all earthly powers. You have no rivals, Lord. You stand alone. You're unequaled, unthreatened, unparalleled. And it's in you, Lord, that we have been filled with all of your fullness. So Lord, I pray as we, as we come this morning that these huge realities would be very present in our, in our hearts and in our minds. As we hear from your word that you would empower, energize and equip us to hear, not just with our ears and our brains, but with all that we are. And Lord, I pray that we would be equipped for the battle through the preaching of your word this morning. Holy Spirit, please be very active in these moments. Don't let any of us go out of here, Lord, without being ready. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you may know, we're getting now to the end of, of a series which has been exploring that the Bible is one story and Jesus Christ is the main character of that story and we are in that story today. After today, we've got four, maybe five weeks left in this series, it's kind of hard to believe, hey? 
And at our spot in the series, we're considering how the big story of the Bible brings clarity to different elements of the Christian life, which are, are often confusing and difficult to understand. And how, how these elements of the Christian life are clarified when we see them in the scope of the whole Bible. And so today we come to spiritual warfare. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that phrase, spiritual warfare. For me, it, it makes me think of some key moments in my childhood where my mom told me that what was going on at that moment was spiritual warfare. We were engaged in spiritual warfare. And as a child, that thought seemed both terrifying and very, very exciting all at the same time. And, and one of the reasons for the excitement was that it, it seemed to bring the Bible to life. These weren't just stories. It's like, you know, we talked about this a couple times in this series. It's like if you, you know, when you meet the people in the story that you read about and you realize that this is for real, Satan's not just a, a character in a story. We're interacting with him in some regard right now. At least that's, that's some of the thoughts that I had in it. It made the Bible be very real to me. And that's actually a big part of what I want us to grasp this morning. Spiritual warfare may be one of the best ways for us to really understand that this story we read about in scripture is true and we are in it today. We are a part of this. This is reality. Now, it's unfortunate that spiritual warfare has been very often misunderstood and misrepresented. I think if, if we don't know someone like this, I think we're at least familiar with the, the caricature of, of the person who takes spiritual warfare very, very seriously, and we might say way too seriously. You know, you've probably heard the phrase about the kind of person who sees a demon hiding behind every bush. Um, and this is kind of the idea that I'm pointing to. I knew someone like this many years ago, and it was, it was very diff difficult. You know, if you go to a restaurant and the meal would arrive late, that was a spiritual attack, and you know, and that kind of a person. And it, it's, it, it's difficult to kind of have a normal relationship with someone like that. But on the other extreme, there are Christians, and I suspect probably many Christians, they barely think about spiritual warfare at all. If, 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 if I could prove to them that the devil wasn't real, it wouldn't make a difference in their Christian life. Now, I can't prove that to them because it's not true, but you hear what I'm saying. If, if the devil, if you took the devil out of the Bible, it wouldn't impact them whatsoever. Spiritual warfare is not on their radar. So what does it look like for us to be biblical? What does it look like for us to be balanced, you could say? I believe when we look at what the whole Bible has to say about spiritual warfare, we're going to discover spiritual warfare is, on the one hand, a much bigger deal than many Christians think. It is more pervasive and more important than maybe you give it credit for. But on the other hand, Scripture shows us that spiritual warfare is far less of a deal than some Christians think it is. It is far more normal and far more accessible than we might think. So how does that work? What, what, what do I mean? Well, that's what we're going to see as we dig into the story together and survey what the big story of the Bible has to say about this. So we're going to begin where we've begun time and time again, where we need to begin, where it all begins is in the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis. This is where everything begins, including spiritual warfare. We get the first whiff of battle in 
chapter 3, verse 1. It's actually interesting. This isn't in my notes, but um, if you were an ancient reader of Scripture, you'd actually probably be looking for a battle quite a, quite a bit sooner. In the ancient world, every most of the religions, they had creation myths. And in many of those creation myths, they believed that the gods or the creator God, before he could create the world, he had to defeat some sort of an enemy before he could proceed with creating the world. And some of those elements sound sort of similar to some of the stuff we see in Genesis 1, except Genesis 1, as it tells us what really happened is just God, just making the world. There's no battle whatsoever. God is totally supreme. And this establishes God as on a completely different level than any of his enemies. And that's something that ancient readers of scripture would have noticed. God doesn't have to fight anyone first before he can create the world. The first whiff of battle that we really catch, though, in, in clarity is in Genesis chapter 3. And we've just heard at the end of chapter 2 that the man and, man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. And in a word that kind of rhymes with that, we hear that, and the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And we go on to hear about this serpent coming and talking to Eve about that tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. So it's not until later on in scripture we find out what's, what's really going on here, that this serpent was Satan, the devil. From the best that we can gather, he was one of God's angels, and at some point he chose to rebel. He chose to do what he wanted instead of what God wanted. And what he does in Genesis 3 is he recruits Adam and Eve to join his team. He comes, and again, this is all stuff we, re we reviewed back in the fall, but he comes, he makes them doubt God's word, makes them doubt the trustworthiness of God's word, and he, and he sells them on the alluring benefits of, of doing their own thing instead of obeying God. And that's where the battle began. That's where spiritual warfare began. And by the way, those battle lines have not moved an inch. Those battle lines, the, the battle is still raging today along those very same lines. The trustworthiness of God's word, whether we believe everything it says, whether it happened the way God said it happened, and the question of whether we will trust and obey God or follow our own desires. This battle hasn't moved. Satan won the first round, though. Adam and Eve believed him instead of God. Adam and Eve fell into sin. But God responded with a declaration of war. The Lord God said to the serpent, this is Genesis 3.14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, a state of being enemies, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You hear what God's saying here? He's saying, this means war. Anyone hear a Petra song when I say that? Anyone out there? Spiritual warfare, Petra? Thanks, my brothers. This means war, and I'm going to win. There is an offspring 
This, this woman, Satan, that you just tempted and led into sin, there is an offspring coming from her, and he's coming for you. And you're going to strike out and wound his heel, but that bruised heel is going to come down on your head and finish you off. And one of the most important things for us to recognize this morning is that from Genesis chapter 3 onwards, everything in the story of the Bible and therefore, everything in the history of planet Earth has been a part of this great spiritual war. Every man and woman from, from Cain and Abel onwards, including you, was born onto a battlefield. Every covenant that God made with his people was an act of war. One more step in his long campaign against the serpent. So you hear what I'm saying here? From Genesis 3 onwards, spiritual warfare is not one element of the story. Spiritual warfare is the story. The Bible is a story about a war. It's true that as we, most of the time as we read through the Bible, we see just one half of this war. The part that we see with our eyes. People making decisions, carrying out their activities, following God or not following God. And we know like all the, everything we've seen about the, 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 all these covenants leading up to Jesus. It's all a part of God's plan to bring forth the serpent crusher. But every once in a while in scripture, the curtain gets pulled back and we see the other side of this conflict. It happens a few different times where we realize there is an unseen realm here which is real and which is a part of this very same battle. On the other side of the curtain, it's going on. Daniel 10 is an example of that. God's people were in exile. And Daniel was, was in mourning and fasting for three weeks. And it doesn't really say why. It doesn't, doesn't really tell us why. It doesn't even seem like he knew. But then he gets a vision one day of this terrifying, majestic angel who shows up. He wasn't wearing a dress and he didn't have wings and a trumpet. This was a terrifying person that Daniel saw. And we find out that for those past three weeks that Daniel was mourning and fasting, this angel was trying to get through to Daniel to communicate a message to him. Listen to what this says. This is Daniel 10, 12 to 14. The angel says, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come to you because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Those three weeks that you're mourning and fasting. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. And then a few verses later, this is uh, verses 20 to 21 in Daniel 10. He says, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. With our eyes, we see human nations in conflict with each other and, and the fate of God's people tied up in all of that. But you see here, the curtain gets pulled back and we see that on the other side, there is another side to history, a cosmic battle going on behind the scenes. That there are 
authority structures and, 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 and positions of power in the spiritual world that correspond to the authorities and, and powers in, in, in this physical world that we see. Things that we barely understand. Daniel 10 and other passages like it, they remind us that spiritual warfare isn't a metaphor. There is a real war going on and God's people are really a part of it. And then Jesus came. One of my favorite messages in this whole series was November 25th, Jesus, the offspring of Eve. And in that message, we saw how the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are the central events in this great war. Let me just sum up some of the things we saw there. We considered the angel armies at the birth of Christ, right? Angel hosts, not a choir, it's an army cheering in celebration that the invasion was finally happening. We saw Jesus beginning his ministry by facing off against Satan in the wilderness and marching out of that battle victorious, standing strong where all others before him had fallen. We saw demons crying out in terror, right? The, the things of horror movies crying out in terror before Jesus, begging for their lives and obeying him, doing exactly what he told them to do as the serpent crusher walked around with absolute authority. We heard Jesus describe himself as the stronger man who had overpowered Satan and tied him up and was in the very act of plundering his house. That's what Jesus was doing. That's the ministry of Jesus, a looting operation. And that's what he's still doing today. Every person, you in this room who believes in Jesus, you are someone who Jesus has plundered out of the household of Satan and Satan is powerless to stop any of it from happening. He's completely overwhelmed by the power of Jesus. And then we saw the decisive victory won by Jesus at the cross, right? That's where Satan reached out to strike at that heel and yet that heel in that very act came down on his head and Satan found himself crushed. Because as Jesus died, he died for all of those sins that Satan had tempted us to commit and then worked so hard to accuse us for, right? That's how we talked about that. That's how Satan works. He tempts and then he pulls off the disguise and he accuses us. Revelation 12, 10, day and night he accuses us before God. And Jesus died for every single one of those sins. So Satan has nothing left to accuse us for. Jesus took on himself the judgment of death, and so Satan has nothing more to make us fearful of. And so Colossians 2 tells us, when Jesus died, it says this, that he canceled, quote, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Satan and his cohorts, those invisible empires we hear about in Daniel chapter 10, they haven't just been defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. They've been humiliated, put to open shame, embarrassed at how they've been routed by Christ. Hebrews 2 tells us, Hebrews 2.14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So in his death and his burial and his resurrection, Jesus won the decisive victory over Satan. 
Satan has nothing left to accuse us for. He has nothing left to make us fearful of. We are free from his power. And then we know how the story ends. We know what the book of Revelation tells us. After Jesus returns a second time, and right before God creates the new heavens and the new earth, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and locked up and tormented forever, full stop. That's how the war ends. But what about today? Because the war hasn't ended yet. Satan has been defeated, but he has not yet been destroyed. And what we read in scripture is we try to understand where are we in the story and what does this mean for us? What we learn in scripture is that even though Satan can't destroy us or even defeat us, Satan cannot snatch us out of God's hand he can still cause us a measure of harm. He's still a threat. So very quickly here, I want to just sum up the, the three ways that I see the New Testament saying Satan can still do this. Three ways that Satan can still be a threat to us. The first way is that Satan can interfere with our lives and bring us a measure of harm. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 when he writes, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. That happened. Paul wanted to do something and Satan blocked it from happening. Second Corinthians 2.11, he talks about Satan's designs against the church. Revelation 2.10, Jesus talks about the fact that the devil was going to throw some of God's people into prison. So I want to add very quickly here that just like in the story of Job, God is sovereign over all of this. Devil can't do anything without God's permission. But just like with Job, God sometimes does allow Satan to interfere with us and cause us a measure of harm. So that's one way that, that he is still a threat to us. Second, Satan works through false teaching. This comes up several times in the New Testament. False teaching is a work of Satan. Uh, false teachers are called Satan's servants in 2 Corinthians eleven twelve. 12. 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 26 talks about how Satan uses false teaching to ensnare people, make them do his will. If you were the devil and you'd been defeated, you'd work really hard to make sure people didn't know that, didn't believe that, make people think you still had power over them, believe things that will harm them and hold them back and trip them up. So Satan works through false teaching. And third, Satan still works to tempt us to sin, right? It's this old game from the garden and it still works. Now, sin doesn't condemn us anymore. It doesn't bring God's judgment on us, any, like eternal judgment on us anymore if we're in Christ. But it still affects our witness. It still quenches our joy it slows down our spiritual growth. It makes, it makes God look bad, right? Every public Christian leader who Satan gets to tempts into some form of a sin makes God look bad. So these are three, at least three ways I see in the New Testament that Satan still is a, is a threat to us. 
So 1 Peter 5.8 brings some of these ideas together when it says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so Peter is writing to these Christians who are being persecuted, and he knows Satan is perhaps behind that persecution, or Satan's going to try and tempt them to be terrified or maybe tempt them to despair or tempt them to be faithless, to, to renounce Christ, whatever. And so Peter warns them to watch out. But did you notice what he told them, us, not to do with the devil? It doesn't say your adversary, the devil's prowling around so be afraid, be very afraid. Doesn't say that. He also doesn't tell us to try to engage directly with Satan by rebuking him or binding him or renouncing him or even praying against him. None of that. What does it say? Resist him. Firm in your faith. Resist the devil. Don't do what he wants you to do. Don't believe what he wants you to believe. And believe God instead. Same idea in James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. You want to make the devil run away from you? Just don't do what he wants you to do. Don't believe what he wants you to believe. Resist him. Stand up to him and don't do it. Stand your ground, trust and obey God, and Satan will run away from you. And this is the truth that is unpacked for us in wonderful detail in our passage of Ephesians chapter 6, which we're finally getting to. Ephesians chapter 6. Such a wonderful passage that just, like I said, it just unpacks what we have just seen. Ephesians 6 contains some of the most vivid descriptions of spiritual warfare in the, in the, in the whole Bible. Verse 12. It, we wrestle against, like listen to this, folks. You wrestle against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You want a sobering wake-up call to take your Christianity seriously? You just got it. You're in a battle of cosmic proportions. You are wrestling against the very forces of darkness themselves. Those guys that Daniel heard about, you are engaged in battle against them. So what do we do? We stand our ground. Three times we're told this in verse 11, 13, 14. Stand. Stand firm. When a, a military platoon or group of soldiers is told to hold their position, that's a good sign that they're in a good spot. They're holding good ground. 
and they need to make sure they keep it. And that's what we're being told here. In Christ, we're holding really good ground. Right? Ephesians has already told us in 121 that Jesus has been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Like we sang, that word above all earthly powers and not earthly powers. Jesus is completely above and beyond any other power and we are united to him. We are his body. So we've got the high ground. And as the forces of darkness assail us, and they will assail us, we stand our ground and we fight. So how do we fight? How do we engage in spiritual warfare? Do you know what Ephesians 6 tells us? We engage in spiritual warfare by living the normal Christian life. Listen to what verse 14 says. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. When we look at the context, I mean, I don't, we don't have time to kind of show you why I come to these conclusions, but I could talk to you afterwards. In, in the context of the letter of Ephesians, truth, when it talks about the belt of truth, it's best understood as speaking about truthfulness, or you could say integrity. And when it says righteousness, about the breastplate of righteousness, that's, that's best understood as talking about our, right, our, our righteousness, like living in a righteous way. So you think about that, integrity, righteous living. It's pretty basic, isn't it? Like every Christian should be marked by those things. And Paul says here that these things, as, as one commentator said, are our basic equipment in the spiritual battle. Integrity and righteous living. The normal Christian life. We go on to read that our readiness for the battle comes through the gospel. Verse 15. Our main defensive weapon against the schemes of the devil, faith, shield of faith. We believe God's promises instead of believing the lies. We're protected as a helmet by salvation. And when we compare this to other scriptures, like 1 Thessalonians 5.8, this is pointing to our hope in, our, in, in what Jesus has done and what Jesus is still going to do to save us. And then we pick up our sword. The sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. Remember that thing that we're supposed to be setting our minds on as we walk according to the Spirit? That's our weapon. And finally, Paul points to prayer, Ephesians 6, 18 and 20. Prayer for each other and prayer for those who are giving their lives to advance the gospel. I remember when this first clicked into me. See, because for so many years when I had heard the armor of God, I thought it was sort of this mystical kind of thing. And, you know, in my family for a few years in the morning, we would like pray on the armor and I didn't really know kind of, okay, so I've kind of prayed on the armor, so... I don't know what that means. Like there's this breastplate of righteousness and it somehow kind of came off at night and it's in my closet and now I've prayed and now it's kind of on me again. And I, it was just all very confusing and it's so clarifying to realize that when it says the breastplate of righteousness, what it's saying is that the breastplate that we need to 
have to protect ourselves is just righteousness. The shield of faith, you know what that is? Faith. It's, it's, it's very simple, right? And this is telling us that the way that we fight the spiritual battle is by living the wonderfully normal Christian life. We believe God, we obey him, we trust his promises, we rest in the gospel, we set our minds on his word, and those are acts of war. Now, all of this should make sense when we remember, right, from Genesis 3 onwards, how much of the story is war, all of it. How much of the Christian life is spiritual war, all of it. Spiritual warfare is not some extra thing that a few Christians might encounter every once in a while. Right? I, I thought that way for years. You know, there's the normal Christian life, and then every once in a while, oh, getting into some spiritual warfare here. No, the Christian life itself is spiritual war. And so it shouldn't surprise us that our armor and our weapons are just the basics of the Christian life. Integrity, righteous living, a deep understanding of the gospel, faith in God's promises, hope in our salvation, God's precious word and prayer. That's our armor, that's our weapons, that's how we fight the wonderfully, supernaturally normal Christian life. Now, as we step back and take this all in, there's two possible ways we could react to this teaching. One reaction is we could say, oh, that's all there is to spiritual warfare. That, you know, shield of faith is just faith. It's just the Christian life. Okay, well, I guess spiritual warfare isn't that big of a deal. And I guess I don't really need to think about it all that much. That's one, one reaction. That would be the wrong reaction. Instead, we should say, the normal Christian life is spiritual warfare. As I trust and obey and read the Bible and pray, I'm engaged in a deep and a real cosmic spiritual battle. Wow, that means the stakes are high. That means my spiritual disciplines, spending time in God's word and prayer, are really, really important. That means that knowing the gospel and being grounded in its message is really, really important. That means that what I do during my days are really important. That means being a Sunday Christian is not even a possibility. This means everything matters. I'm a soldier in the army and I need to get fighting. I don't have the option to not put these things into practice. I don't have the option to take an off day from faith. I don't have the option to take an off day from prayer, to take an off day from the sword of the spirit. This is war, and I'm always on. Please hear this warning. God's word tells us that the normal Christian life is spiritual war, and that is not saying spiritual warfare is no big deal. It's telling us that the normal Christian life is a really big deal. It's telling us that every person in this room who is a believer in Jesus Christ is a spiritual warrior. 
It's telling us that we have been fighting against the devil. We have already been fighting against the devil with every decision that we've made to honor God. Every minute we've spent thinking and reading about God's word, everything we've presented to God in prayer, every act of obedience where we've said no to sin and yes to God, acts of war. I also want us to notice this morning that this teaching, it does correct some imbalances in the way that many people have thought about spiritual warfare. So just one example, we could talk about this for a long time. I remember reading about a Christian leader who wouldn't, when he was traveling to teach, he wouldn't sleep in a hotel room before he went through the process of cleansing that room spiritually because he didn't know if there was people who had been in there before who had left spiritual darkness behind. And so he would address the demons who might be in that room. And he had this verbal formula he would use to bind them and make them leave the room so that there wouldn't be any spiritual warfare while he slept there that night. And maybe you think, wow, that guy thinks too much about spiritual warfare. I've never thought to do that before sleeping in a hotel room. Well, for starters, just a kind of a quick side point. I don't see anywhere in the Bible that demons can attach themselves to rooms or objects and that we should use verbal formulas to renounce or bind them. I just don't see that in scripture. I don't think that's how it works. Jesus already bound the strong man. Jesus already disarmed the spiritual forces. So even the idea of of praying against the devil, I just don't see that in God's word. But more importantly, I want to suggest to you that this guy, his problem wasn't that he thought too much about spiritual warfare. His problem was that he didn't think enough about spiritual warfare. His understanding of spiritual warfare was way too small. He thought spiritual warfare meant demons lurking in a hotel room and pouncing on him in the middle of the night. He didn't understand that spiritual warfare began when he woke up that morning and opened up his Bible and read it and believed it, and went through his day trusting God and making decisions that honor God, and praying and obeying, walking in integrity, living a righteous life. Every single one of those actions, standing up to the forces of darkness. The Christian life itself is war. And as we sum this all up, you know what one of the best passages in scripture is for us that we can use to kind of conclude all of this and tie it all together and and kind of sum it up in a way that we can take home. It's a passage that probably most of you age 35 and under have memorized because you sang it over and over again at camp and youth meetings for the past three decades. I'm talking about Romans chapter 16 verse 19 and 20 which says this, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Do you hear that echo from Genesis 3? Right, That God is going to crush Satan under our feet. We're the body of Christ, and we play a role in this work of Jesus in crushing the serpent. God is using us to destroy the devil. And the sense in that verse is that this is an ongoing thing that we participate in. And how do we do that? 
by being wise to what is good and being innocent of evil. By living the wonderfully, supernaturally normal Christian life. And the wonderfully, supernaturally normal Christian life is an act of war and it is the means by which God crushes Satan. So be encouraged this morning. If you're someone who's been attempting to do that, someone who has been doing your best to trust and obey Jesus and believe the truth and rest in the gospel and do the things that God wants you to do and not do the things that Satan wants you to do, then be encouraged because whether you know it or not, you've been fighting and you've been fighting well. The forces of darkness have reason to fear you. So keep it up. Don't give them an inch of ground. Resist the devil and trust the promise that time and time again, he will flee from you. If you're not that person that I've just described, if you consider yourself a Christian, but you haven't been taking your Christian life very seriously, if you've been taking it easy, and thinking that as long as you show up on Sunday, once in a while, everything will be okay, then please hear the call this morning to wake up. Jump into the fray. If you are a Christian, you're a part of an army. And this church is full of soldiers in the heat of battle who could really use your sword and shield right there beside them. So let's get fighting together. And finally, if you're here this morning and none of this makes sense to you because you're not sure about Jesus, and you're not sure whether you really believe that he died for your sins, I wanna just call you to please don't leave today without making this truth yours. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation today because this battle, whether or not you believe it, it's real. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, you are in far more spiritual danger than you could ever imagine. So come to Jesus this morning, find safety in him. Let yourself be plundered out of the house of Satan into the household of God. Come to Jesus this morning and trust him to save you. I'm gonna pray for us now and we're gonna sing a song to close, not Romans 16, 19. We're gonna sing the song that we sang at the beginning, O Church Arise, and let's all, each one of us, hear this as our summons today. Heavenly Father, Thank you for making us soldiers in your army. And the call to battle loudly rings. And oh God, may we answer. May we answer and may we fight and may we not give the forces of darkness an inch of ground. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.